Hi, and welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Connie Loises, and this week we have TechCrunch's Danny Crichton. Hi. Crunchbase News is Alex Wilhelm. Hello, everybody. And this week, our special guest is Brian O'Malley, a general partner with Forerunner Ventures. Brian, thank you so much for coming. Hey, Connie. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Great to see you. All right. So before we get into the regular topics, kind of the venture world that we usually talk about, I want to do a digression onto the public markets because in the last 48 hours, they've been kind of leading the headlines. Now, you're listening to this probably on Friday. It's Thursday right now. And this has been the second day kind of of catastrophic declines in the uh, public markets. The NASDAQ, the S&P, and the Dow, not to mention global indices, if you're listening somewhere else, um, have all taken pretty severe damage. Uh, just some top-level numbers. I think the the big five tech companies, so that's you know Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, or Alphabet, Microsoft, yesterday lost about $190 billion in combined market cap. Today, wow. they're off about 24 so that's an enormous bout of value deletion. And this trickles back down all the way into the SaaS market and a lot of other kind of tech uh, genres. So I, I was kind of curious what we all felt while this was going on. I, I couldn't stop watching CNBC. I, I, well, first of all, did anybody pull an IPO this week or in the last two days that was planning to go out? Does anybody know? This would be sort of like the worst day you'd think to go yeah. public. Anaplan's going out soon, right? Yeah. Is it going out like... I think the they could be pricing this afternoon. This is what happens when I've had a crazy day. I'm a little bit behind. But <laughs> Anaplan filed, I think it was in September. Yeah. That's been a long planned offering. And they were they filed when the sun was shining. They weren't expecting the flash flood, I don't think. No, no. There was another one, um, a Philadelphia-based maker of lithium batteries that uh, sort of strangely spun off earlier this year from a pesticide maker called FMC called Liven. And I know that it's shares. Sounds like today. a Mad Libs right there. <laughs> A battery company yeah, in Philadelphia yeah. Yeah, yeah. from a pesticide exactly. company in Georgia. Yeah. Oranges, Eating bananas. bananas. <laughs> and then the Vision Fund comes and buys all of it. Uh, <laughs> the only other IPO that I knew of was Yayo, which is Y-A-Y-Y-O, which is that company that used to help people, I think, rent cars to use Uber and is that Lyft. Little John's company? I don't I don't know, but it's also a cocaine joke because Yayo is slang. Anyways, it's terrible. It is? I didn't know that. I'm so, I'm so old, I guess. Um, um so wait, wait, is that a Chinese company that went public here? That's an, it's an American company? company that's trying to go public here. It's, okay. it's, it's been on the IPO calendar for a little bit and has never actually managed to get off the IPO calendar. So okay. I don't think it's going to go out. So that <laughs> one might get pulled, but I wouldn't say it's because the S&P took a dive. Uh, I think it's because it's, it's a terrible business. But what's happening right now? I mean, what's driving this? That's, like, there's been a lot of awfulness for a long time, a lot of uncertainty, uh, with this you know, tariff war we're having. Brian, do you have any idea like what sparked this latest... Sure. So my day job is not a public market investor, but I can, I can read like the rest of us. Welcome to Equity. And we don't so, care. Uh, yeah, actual knowledge need not apply. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if you look, the multiples are are way up on a historic basis. Right. Uh, there's, you know, questions around interest rates. And so, you know, that that has caused some people to think about whether it's time to hit the pause button. And usually when people start selling, other people jump on board because right, right. uh, no one really knows what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, so it's either a great time to buy or it's a good time to run for the sh run for the hills. So, Well, you know, it's interesting, speaking of a good time to buy. So um, I was looking at a Business Insider story earlier today, and it was talking about um, all the people on Robinhood, this uh, trading app that lets sort of millennials, especially, I think is their target audience, uh, trade for free. And a lot of them are buying up Tesla right now. I think they said like 111,000 people on Robinhood have bought it because, uh, you know, Tesla is what, like, I think off, I don't know how many percent from its high. Um, and I guess they see it as a buying opportunity. So, uh, I mean, it's, you know, things are off. It'll be interesting to see how quickly they go back 
Um, yeah. you know, I'm sure it's always scary of- when people's stock picking decisions are based on funny tweets as opposed to business fundamentals. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. We'll, well see. I, I, ugh, people are very, very dumb. Uh, Danny, are people uh, panicking in the streets of New York? Is there chaos? Are there riots? Is there street signs? What's going on? <laughs> uh, there's rain in New York, so no one's going outside, uh, Alex. But I, I will say, I mean, covering the, the Chinese tariff battle, I, I think is still the massive sort of underpinning for this market change. Uh, you know, you look at some of the discussions, particularly in the last week, whether it's the Bloomberg story about the the, the chip uh, or non-chip as it might be. Um, we also had a, a Wall Street Journal sort of report, uh, I think in the last 24 hours, that um, the, the Justice Department has sort of uh, arrested the first Chinese spy uh, for industrial espionage. So it looks like yes. it, it's going to get more hard and more intense. And I think for the global markets, there's just a lot of concern all around the board. Yeah. I mean, uh, Thomas, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, Tungas from uh, Redpoint Ventures, one of the more I think intelligent investors in the SaaS space. He does a very great personal blog, kind of going over his view on SaaS metrics and economics that everyone tends to read. Mm-hmm. He had a great post out on the 9th of October discussing the rise in public multiples for SaaS companies and how far they are outside of kind of historical norms. So my my thesis about why this happened is that it had to happen sometime. Why not now? We've pushed things so far for so long. Now that we, the rubber band's snapping back, maybe just for a couple of days even, I'm surprised that we're surprised at this. This should happen more often when we're this far uh, far up. Yeah. I well, I almost think it's the opposite. I think we're surprised that it took this long in the first place. Right, right, right. Yeah, Amen. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And so then you start to forget about the fact that this can happen. Uh, but usually these are good times where some companies struggle, other ones that have the right fundamentals. One of the main reasons why... Public market investors love SaaS companies is because of their predictability. Uh, and a lot of those macro trends are, still have a long way to go. So the right companies will persevere. It was, it was like buying NetSuite and Salesforce in 2009 in December. It was a pretty good time to buy. And mm-hmm. Many of those stocks are up 20, 30x since then. Yeah, I, I think as always, good businesses will be fine. It's kind of the old joke. Who can raise right now? Only the good companies. You know, it's always true. Um, Actually, but, everyone can raise right now. Well, well <laughs> <laughs> I just got burned by a venture capitalist. This is a new low in my life. Uh, it's it's a phrase you can use at any point in the business cycle, but I, I do agree it sounds very silly now. Um, on that point, let's talk about WeWork. Yeah, speaking of raising money. So, all right, we don't know what's happening yet, but SoftBank uh, and its massive 100 million, or I guess 93 million, billion, billion excuse billion, me, billion. Yeah. Uh, Vision you, you Fund Dr. is- Dr. Evil. You know. <laughs> exactly. Um, is apparently, according to the Wall Street Journal, talking to WeWork about taking a majority stake in the business. I don't know what that means exactly, but they plan to pour a whole bunch of money in it. So SoftBank has already invested something like $4.4 billion in WeWork, which is that you know co-working space that's sort of taking over the universe. Uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, now it's talking about, SoftBank is talking about uh, investing another 15 to 20 billion in the company. So this is enormous for, you know, I mean, literally and also figuratively, but SoftBank's you know, this would be a quarter of SoftBank's fund, which is pretty crazy that it's, it would invest so much in this company. Um, also, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I don't know what, what this means for the company, if this means, you know, that Adam Newman would be, um, I guess, sort of, I don't know what it would mean for the management of the company. Brian, what do you think of the deal? Or yeah, the I think there's three deal? things that are, are, are kind of interesting here. Uh, the first of which is just the sheer dollars involved. Uh, I remember when the Andreessen team put $50 million in a lift and we all thought it was nuts. Exactly. And so we're talking about you know over $10 billion into a company. And it's really because SoftBank is not a venture capital firm. They're not a growth equity firm. Um, they're really looking at broader market trends and macro trends and uh, being able to put massive amounts of money to work, which is something that if you're a large enough 
uh, sovereign wealth fund. They're really the only game in town that can put that much money to work and actually have a strategy for returning it. What do you think of WeWork? So, and I had a chance to sit down with Adam Newman a couple of, I guess, a disruptor or two ago, uh, and he really was selling the vision of WeWork as a technology company. Of course, I think there's some sort of you know debate about um, how far he is from fulfilling that vision. I mean, it's still very much a, you know, a real estate company. Do you think even a $20 billion valuation, which is where WeWork is today, sounds reasonable? Yeah. So I would have called WeWork wrong from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I came up in the venture industry, it was all about asset-light businesses. It was all about driving innovation through technology and actually invested in a company called Loose Cubes, which is basically leveraging the excess space in offices to create this kind of marketplace a lot harder than just renting out buildings and leasing them to people and ultimately didn't work out super well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think one of the big things that is different about WeWork is really not the technology. The technology is not why people are going there in the first place, and it's not driving the majority of their revenue. It's really that they've been so amazingly effective at raising capital to date. Mm -hmm. And that uh, their ability to raise cheap capital has been what's enabled them to create an experience that a lot of people like. It's, and it, it works well from a working environment perspective. And so I don't know if they have to be a tech company at the end of the day. That might ultimately impact their multiple, uh, but their impact in terms of how people are working and establishing this trend is clearly here to stay. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is, at the end of the day, are people willing to pay a premium to work at a WeWork or does it get to be, you know, become like the Starbucks of co-working and people would rather work in one of the many boutique type offerings that are popping up? And so ultimately, it's a real estate game mm-hmm. and it's their ability to charge a premium over what that space would lease for otherwise. Right, right. I mean, it's certainly a trend, you know, as you say. I mean, that could change. People would could decide to go in a sort of an opposite direction. Um, have you looked at sort of boutique uh, co-working spaces? Is yeah. something that's ever been interesting to you? Yeah, again, I think it's not, um, again, historically I would describe it as not my job to invest in those companies, mm-hmm. although, again, WeWork uh, would have been a good one to mm-hmm. do early on. <laughs> right. uh, but it is certainly something that a lot of our companies are looking at. And if you think about it, a lot of the issues here is just the way the leases have been structured in these large urban environments is that these small companies that have only been around for a year or two are signing five, seven, ten-year leases that they know they will never be in those places. Mm-hmm. They will either be long, like far bigger, or they will be long out of business. And so a lot of what WeWorks brings to the table is just the ability to cut that lease into much more digestible chunks Mm -hmm. and enable you to flex up and flex down. And for small companies, that's a huge offering. Well, the big deal too, I guess, for the company is it's getting the big companies now that are doing that as well, because they've also bulk up during times like this where it's, you know, go, go, go for a decade. But in the case of a downturn, you know, they've got Microsoft and many other sort of enterprise clients. They can just sort of be like, yeah, yeah, but that flips. I mean, we just talked about the market falling apart. Who holds the leases in the end of the day? It's WeWork. And so if all these businesses flex down, as we're saying, they can be left holding the financial bag. And the last numbers in the company are even during this amazing boom time when you know co-working is hot and everyone's moving into these spaces, they're still losing oceans and oceans of money on an operating basis. So the company is managing to not do well right now. Danny, go for it. No, I was going to say, I mean, you're absolutely right. And even just in New York, so th- these are numbers from the Wall Street Journal, but there's 265,000 desks in WeWork in 287 buildings across 5 million square feet. And so WeWork is now the largest commercial renter uh, in Manhattan. 
And so, you know, any downturn that affects the tech industry, the ad industry, the finance industry, I mean, basically anything, um, you know, WeWork's going to be the one holding those leases. And in many cases, they're 15, 20 year leases. That's incredibly long. So that's two cycles of the business of the business cycle right there. So they're going to have to hold these through good times and bad twice. I think I think one of the things that we got to take a step back and look and say, look, what is their ultimate business model? And to date, their business model has been raising gobs of cash, <laughs> right? And they're very good at that. And so, and that's created a competitive advantage in their day job. Uh, but it's also something that they've been very good at. And it's one of these questions that when you look at venture funds or you look at people that are investing lots and lots of money, is their day job the fees that they're getting or is the day job the carry they're getting? Right. And sometimes when you look at these startups, they might have generated $5 million of revenue, but they've raised $100 million of capital. Mm-hmm. So their salaries are far more getting paid by the dollars they've raised than the customers that they've served. Right. And so I think WeWork has been very effective at that to date. And the question is, you know, you, how far in the future do you need to look? And I think that, you know, they again, they offer a very good product uh, and you can draw a chart where the lines converge and it, the business all makes sense. Um, but, to, but to date, the biggest thing that was non-obvious about WeWork was their ability to raise lots and lots of money right. compared to a Regis or someone else that historically been in that space and hadn't innovated in 20 years. Well, that's why I think the technology piece, even though it's minor today, could become more important over time, you know, like basically like office management. And I think they are sort of already licensing that technology to companies that don't want to necessarily move their employees into a WeWork, but want to turn their own spaces into more WeWork-like spaces. Anyway, it's- yeah. I think it's super cool. I think layering mm-hmm. software on top of hardware in this case, or just buildings, mm-hmm. think about however you want, is, is neat, but they're going to raise more money. I think we can all agree on this. And so they're going to have even more expectations to fulfill. And so I'm worried if that technology component can kind of grow into the sort of- uh, value to fill in the valuation gap they're going to have. It's, yeah, they're definitely like the sands are going through the hourglass. Yeah. But what's interesting about this deal too is, um, so SoftBank, now, you know, uh, I guess it was, maybe it was in Recode I saw earlier today them saying, you know, this is a possibility. First of all, apparently uh, there's like tension in these talks, so I don't know what that means exactly. But um, atop whatever was already happening, WeWork has to deal now with sort of a reputational hit uh, that SoftBank uh, seems to be in the midst of right now. And that's because of SoftBank's biggest investor, which is Saudi Arabia um, and its crown prince, um, Mohammed bin Salman. Or MBS, as we tend to call it. Or MBS, West, yeah. which is a lot easier to say. So uh, I'm sure listeners have been following this case to some extent, but there is a missing journalist uh, who was is, was was most recently a columnist for the Washington Post. He uh, disappeared at the... Um, Saudi embassy in Turkey. He is believed to be dead. He didn't. There's footage of him going into the embassy and not coming out. Um, you know, basically, Turkish Turkish officials have said that they think um, MBS was responsible for, you know, uh, basically ordering a hit on this guy. We don't know what happened. But either way, it's sort of kind of brought to the fore the fact that MBS and Saudi Arabia are not like your tickle, typical LPs. Um, and though money has been coming into the venture industry for quite a while from these sovereign wealth funds, um, SoftBank has raised so much from this group, $45 billion, uh, and it's uh, MBS just last week said he plans to commit another $45 billion to a second vision fund. So it's kind of complicated. Um, Brian, do you have any thoughts about, uh, you know, how this, how sort of, um, I guess, VCs and, and potentially their founders should be looking at all of this, if at all? I mean, I think it's relevant. 
But of course, it's easy for me to say I'm not an investor. Sure. So so as a venture fund, we care a lot about where our, our money comes. We take a lot of pride in the LPs that we work with, not just because of the institutions that they represent, but because of the longstanding relationship that we hope to have with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but historically, it's been something that founders haven't spent a ton of time focused on. Uh, they might look at uh, you know the venture firm. They might look at how established they are. But very rarely do we get questions in terms of where our money is ultimately coming mm-hmm. from. And so e- even though this whole situation is, is tragic and uh, you know, it's still TBD, what actually happened, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if this is going to materially change how founders look at working with SoftBank. Because SoftBank already has several very materially different things of working with them versus the last big innovator, which in my mind was really DST. And DST's whole model was showing up and saying, look, we're going to give the founders a ton of control. We're going to write big checks at big numbers, but we're largely going to be very passive. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that money originally emerged from from Russia, and that wasn't a, a huge factor at the time. Yeah, right. um, but SoftBank is showing up, and they're br- they're putting operators on the board seats that have uh, a ton of experience. Mm-hmm. They're buying a lot of control of the companies. They typically will have terms on their deals, which are not always the most favorable terms. And so I think the focus is still going to be on that. Right. And the right deal with SoftBank could be a huge pro. Uh, but the the wrong deal, and I think this is one of the questions that the WeWork team might have uh, around a majority control deal, the wrong deal can ultimately put a company in a, in a more difficult position. But DST was private money out of Russia versus this is public Saudi money. True. So we're talking about a private fund of a Russian versus public money from the Saudi Arabian government effectively or ruling family, if you will. Here's a headline from August 22nd, 2018 from the New York Times. Saudi Arabia seeks the death penalty for female activist. This is the country it's been all along. Uh, I, why was this ever okay? I, yeah, well, I, I, oh, sorry, Danny, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, I think I think one of the challenges we're, we're facing is as you get to these larger and larger fund sizes, you know, the, the universe of potential LPs just shrinks massively, right? Like even a Harvard, which has one of the largest, the largest university endowment, you know, probably has a total of maybe 10, 12 billion um, in alternatives and probably assigns maybe one or two billion total to the venture industry across multiple funds. So if you want to raise a $100 billion fund, um, you know, sovereign wealth, massive wealth managers, which come from the oil industry, Russia, from China, uh, you, you tend to get into a, a tougher group of LPs than I think uh, the VC industry has traditionally uh, participated from. Yeah, and I almost wonder if it's the inverse, right? Which is, hey, there's all this money out there mm-hmm. that is looking for some sort of alpha mm-hmm. and some place to put itself. It's looking to diversify away from things like oil, which you can see that the trend line might not be the best on that mm-hmm. over many, many decades. And so the question is, did the funds start out and say, hey, where can we go raise this kind of capital? Or do they start and say, hey, there's all this capital out there. What's the right sort of vehicle that can be effective in, in deploying it? And uh, I remember this conversation. It was really when the unicorns concept started getting going. Mm-hmm. Like 2014-ish? Um, 2015-ish. Okay. And there was lots of questions about whether any one company would be successful. But a lot of people at the time were saying, hey, if I could just buy the basket of all of these unicorns, mm-hmm. I'd feel really confident in that. Mm-hmm. And if you think about what SoftBank's doing, ETF, it's basically. really buying mm-hmm. the basket mm-hmm. of these companies uh, uh, and these unicorns. Right. And like, if you have hundreds of billions of dollars that you got to put somewhere, it's not a bad strategy. Um, well, you know, it also um, in fairness to um, MBS, if I can, I can't believe I just said that. I cannot but, wait uh, to hear the rest of the sentence. <laughs> <laughs> um, another, another, another of SoftBank's really big. Uh, uh, LPs is um, uh, 
uh, Abu Dhabi, uh, and it's um, Mubadala uh, Investment Company. They've got a fifteen billion dollar stake in SoftBank, and they're they're also you know like stoning is legal. Uh, you know, people are disappeared. I mean, um, so, <laughs> um, but but what's interesting? People are I'm sorry, disappeared. They are. That, that's a euphemistic way of saying yeah, murder. It's a I mean, tragic. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, we're talking about theocratic, just, despotic but, governments that murder their own people really, with these impunity. Are, these are di- well, very different LPs and VCs are used to dealing with. So we'll yeah. see how this plays out over the long term. But how? I will say, wait, wait, wait. i got to tell you something else. This is an inside tip. <laughs> but I, I think it's interesting. So Mubadala also established like a $400 million fund out here in Silicon Valley like a year ago. And I'm hearing that they're kind of like a scouting system for SoftBank, which I think is kind of interesting. Uh, you know, they're kind of managing, they're sort of, I think, making sure that their investment in, in the bigger vision fund is sort of safeguarded by what they're seeing on the ground here. But I think they're also, because you sort of feel like, how, how, how can SoftBank kind of, you know, have relationships with these more nascent startups? And I think this is one way that um, we don't, haven't talked about on the show. It's too bad we couldn't fund the global innovation ecosystem without taking money from the theocratic monarchies yeah. that murder their own people. Oh, it's, if only we could well, have done this with moral money. You know it's what just I, too bad we couldn't. What I a shame. also I had written about this actually this week when I was thinking it really is for the VCs, though, like it is for the founders with SoftBank. So if you don't take SoftBank's money, they're going to go somewhere else. And the VCs probably feel the same way. If they don't take you know, MBS's money, he'll give it to somebody else. So it's all sort of, you know, I also think think a huge part of it is also MBS did a very good job on sort of the PR launch of his administration. Remember, he he seized power, right? I mean, he wasn't supposed to be here. Uh, His brother was in charge. This is uh, Mohammed bin Nayef. uh, And he does this sort of 24-hour bloodless coup uh, and managed to take over. And he's sort of telegenic. He's talking about the future and technology and getting Saudi Arabia off of oil. And that, that to me is like, I think was a charm offensive. I mean, I think he really, um, pulled in the Valley and say, look, there's something new here. Um, I think the, the, the challenge with the Valley gets into these more political situations is it just does not have the sophistication of wall street or DC, um, uh, to say, well, who are we really dealing with? And we're going to have, think, these I think they now. know I think they knew exactly who they were dealing with, to be honest. I mean, I feel like he is charming. And I've heard some of these guys describe him as very much like a that he feels like a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. But I mean, they also knew that, to Brian's point, he was looking to diversify away from oil and that this was, you know, a chance to get money into their company. So I think that that was a big part of why yeah, they a, thought he was so attractive. Yeah, but at the end of the day, as a venture fund, you always have the option of deciding whether you take one person's money or another. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, I, you know, I don't think it's, it's kind of a cop out to say, like, I think a lot of this is that some of this news has come on more recently. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as people look to work with different LPs, you just got to make a judgment call of whether their values line up with your values right. and uh, and then take it from there. Because we ultimately all have the choice of who we take money from and mm-hmm. who we give money mm-hmm. to. And uh, you want to make sure that that's the kind of thing you can look in the mirror and feel really proud about. I know this is not fair, but I hope founders will think more about this, too. Applause. And uh, as a concluding note, before we move on to whatever's next on the agenda, Thomas Friedman liked MBS. And so with uh, that level of intellectual heft behind him, what could have possibly gone wrong? And I'm just going to let that <laughs> let that go away. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> Sorry, this, this does make me really mad. Like, I, I, I know it's capitalism and that's fine. I'm a capitalist. But like, couldn't we do it without their money? I guess not. All right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I, I also think we're all just so numb from the news cycle in general, given how many things are coming out sure. at such a frequency yeah. that it, 
you know, you almost get to a point where you just kind of can't take one more hit. And right. so you put the blinders on and you focus yeah. well, on doing a great job at what sure, you're doing. Sure, sure, sure. Well, that's a part of this thing, too. And I don't mean to, I know we're dwelling on it for so long, but I mean, this story is going to go away. If this guy's never found, like, it's it's going to be back to business as usual. And the news cycle is because there's so much that comes down the pike. Like, in two days, nobody's going to be talking about this again. And there's, yeah. you know, there's so an enormous it's, hurricane it's, it's, right now. And just like, there's always so much, and the markets are falling apart, and everyone's raising several hundred million dollars. Right. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's, it's chaotic. Um, can we, can we put a pen yes, in the uh, vision fund? Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. Actually, I, for, I almost forgot something. Mm-hmm. Our guest, um, you guys money. raised some money, actually, which is not, <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying to fireball between the last topic and this topic. Not just a little, though. A lot. I mean, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, we're really excited. We closed the $360 million fund. And uh, we feel like it's kind of the Goldilocks fund size where it's big enough that we can lead series A's, we can be a, a strong lead investor and have lots of capital there to follow on our founders, regardless of the environment, but small enough where we can still be very aligned with those teams and not force them down the road to taking more capital than they really need to operate their business. Absolutely. And for people who um, maybe didn't catch where um, Brian works at the outset of this uh, podcast, he works for Forerunner Ventures. Well, Brian's been a VC for a long time. He keeps getting poached by um, <laughs> firms. You were with Battery poached. Ventures. My, my mom actually appreciated that, but I think she was the only one in the family that liked the poached term. <laughs> but he was with Battery, then Excel came calling, and then most recently Forerunner. And he's, he's known, uh, the founder of that firm, uh, Kirsten Green, you were telling me for like 10 or 11 years. But what Forerunner has sort of known for historically is these really smart Prescient bets. And they've been small, but they've turned out to be great outcomes. Dollar Shave Club, Jet, Bonobos, uh, Warby Parker, Glossier. I mean, basically any brand that you've just discovered in the last, you know, five to eight years, this firm is behind and probably wrote one of its first checks. Yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, it's it's amazing what Kirsten and Yuri and the rest of the team have done. And there's a lot of other companies that are more of the you know B2B businesses that are powering these companies. About one out of every $4 we invest goes into a company that's maybe a little bit more behind the scenes. Um, but that portfolio is doing you know as well, if not better, than the ones I that bet. are more commonly known. So now you're interesting because you've always sort of straddled both worlds. You've got like one of your past investments is Hotel Tonight, but you also have Duetto, a business-to-business uh, Sure. Software company. So are you sort of coming in thinking, I mean, are you going to be dividing your time between consumer stuff and uh, uh, B2B or? Yeah. So we, we have a relatively small investment team. Mm-hmm. There's six of us. And so we all are doing the same things. And so okay. it's not my job to come in and have my expertise where I go off on the side mm-hmm. and, and do my thing. Uh, it's, it's my job to be there right with the team. And we're looking at a lot of great um, direct-to-consumer businesses, uh, those some of those are product companies, some of those are marketplaces, some of them are more subscription or media model. And we're really thinking about the changes in the daily consumer life. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of conversation about millennials. Uh, but you think about like Gen X, I didn't realize this, Gen X actually spends more money than millennials or the baby boomer generation. And they've largely been forgotten to date. Yeah. You have Gen Z coming along. Uh, yeah, you, what, the Gen Xers Gen in the crowd all? is actually pretty proud <laughs> here. I think I'm the only millennial. Hey, in this I'm a group, millennial. So like, where do you all do with all the money? Come on, yeah. but you're not, Dan, Danny. You're in New York. You're not in the room. <laughs> yeah. Um, but well, it's it, it's true. And so what I was going to say, um, you know, I wanted to ask you about teeth because there was a big teeth deal today, and um, I talked to. Um, Mithril, which is a, an investment firm you know, that's in uh, San Francisco and is moving to Austin uh, soon, but they were talking about how there's this overlooked generation, you know, the Gen X, so or even you know beyond baby boomers. So they had invested in this dental robotics company in Miami, Florida, that um, performs implant surgery 
uh, I guess like 500,000 people now receive implants each year, which is pretty lucrative. On the other end, what we're seeing much more of, I guess, here in Silicon Valley is sort of like teeth startups. Um, there was one today called... Is this the the, the, the broader Invisalign Mile Direct world Club. that I keep hearing sort about? Of. So yeah, there's... Smile yeah, direct. exactly. So so I haven't really followed this one that closely. Danny, but now it's a multi-billion Brian, dollar company. Yeah. It's worth like over three, three, almost three, three four billion dollars. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. These, if you think about it, these macro trends are large. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like uh, everyone's got teeth for the most part, <laughs> and uh, in the U.S., people want straight teeth, and uh, and so these are big categories. The patents behind Invisalign uh, have come off of patent, uh, and a lot of consumer investors have gotten really focused on these concepts of customer acquisition value, uh, cost, and and lifetime value. And from a pure math perspective, these businesses look really good. Yeah, I think one of the big questions is just, you know, what's the underlying asset that you have? Uh, do you have long-term relationships with these customers? And what's the ultimate equity value? Which you know, I think is still TBD for not Spinal Direct specifically, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of these direct-to-consumer brands. And when we think about it, uh, we look for great products that consumers love, but mm-hmm. we also look for founders that have broader visions in terms of how they can shape people's lives mm-hmm. as opposed to just sell them one product and mm-hmm. then go away. You know, it, it, you don't really think about patents when it comes to sort of direct to consumer uh, things. Um, but you're in, you're involved in a company called Hims that I think is sort of interesting. And I brought it up a couple of weeks ago uh, because there's all these sort of men's wellness, uh, not all of these, but a couple of them uh, at least that have raised a lot of money. So one, um, element of hims is they sell this uh they sell erectile dysfunction medicine that was uh sort of uh, i guess viagra had the patent on it and expired last year so that's again why this space is kind of heating up right now when you are a company that's sort of pursuing a patent that's just expired and uh, i don't know if you're going over after sort of you know a generic alternative uh how much of an advantage does that give you or i guess how much time does that give you to sort of establish a business around it is sure. that yeah, so when we think about companies, there's there's a couple questions, right? One is why now, mm-hmm. right? So what's changed recently that's created an opportunity today versus what maybe wasn't there a year or two years ago? Mm-hmm. And so for Hims and uh, Roe and a few of these other businesses, patents have changed, the laws around telehealth have changed, mm-hmm. and that's opened the door because if you think about it, a lot of these categories are things that people don't advertise that their customers in. Um, there hasn't been any brands that have spoken to this use case. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's something that from, again, from a lifetime value perspective, um, for example, Hims is in the, the hair loss business. Um, I don't know if you guys have, have looked into that, but, there uh, are the ads in my gym. Yeah. I see them. <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's one of these products that once you start using, you literally have to keep using. Otherwise all the benefits you've gotten to date go away. Right. And so when we think about lifetime value, there's, there's kind of nothing better than that, but that's kind of why now. The question that we also need to answer is why tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Because it's one thing if you get a wedge in and that helps you acquire some customers and then the the cost of customer acquisition gets driven up and the whole market erodes. And so when we think about these investments, we also want to see teams that are thinking about ancillary products where they can have a bigger relationship, building brands that ultimately resonate, mm-hmm. building differentiated service experiences and things that will be lasting where if another company comes along and undercuts them by 20% in price, Customer doesn't really care because they like the relationships they have and they want to keep buying from that one brand. Interesting. And that was something we saw with Dollar Shave Club where it started out with razors, but they ultimately had a whole suite of products. And that was one of the reasons why Unilever thought it was an interesting company to look into. Cutting out doctors, though, also is really interesting. And in fact, um, according to uh, our- To clarify, they don't cut them out. They have their own- 
Oh, it's right. like medical oh, marijuana yeah. right. companies. They had your own Skype doctor. It was fantastic. <laughs> Those were the good days. Yeah. But orthodontists apparently are not happy with Smile Direct Club because they're saying it violates the law. It allows people to skip in-person <laughs> visits and x-rays. Uh, and uh, so that's sort of, you know, I don't know if that's. Yes, gonna... it does. But I don't like any x-rays. I had to do that recently. It was awful. Um, <laughs> we are very short on time. But okay. We're going to shout out a couple of quick things that we didn't get to today. Uh, there was a there's a Chinese vegetable delivery company that goes from farmer to restaurant called Maikai, maybe. Um, could be raising six hundred to eight hundred million dollars at a seven billion dollar post money valuation. It's a company you haven't heard of that is explosively large. Um, just a data point out of China. Ignite raised seventy five million. And... These things are always refreshers. Just how big China is. Right. Yeah, they, yeah. They, every time I hear these, I'm like, how many people? Are you? Oh, lots of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a big country. It's yeah. Four times as big as this country or something. And then a uh, another Chinese company um, that does Airbnb type things raised three hundred million, and that's pronounced. Um, Danny, you had this one. Chaozu. There you go. And so just so much money going on around the world. Danny, talk. Do, just quickly, do you know the market there? So isn't there like a big company in China that was talking about trying to acquire Airbnb a couple of years ago and Airbnb turned it down? And I think its investors were ostensibly not that happy about it, like Tao Tao or something. I'm just wondering how well, I think what's interesting, so on Xiaozu, uh, you know, the Chinese tur- tourists from China going overseas is actually a massively growing market, right? So if you've ever been in D.C., like around the White House or anywhere in New York, um, it, it's absolutely exploding. And so Airbnb just does, doesn't have the same access there. Um, and so what you're actually seeing is it's really a consumer acquisition play rather than sort of a property piece. What's interesting is that that sort of splits the market into two categories, the people who work with Airbnb and get sort of a Western Europe, American clientele versus those who work with the Chinese. And so you can imagine that some properties are being customized um, to suit those sort of cultural tastes. Um, but I, I don't recall the specific deal that you're you're referring to a couple of years ago. The one thing I'll throw in there is that uh, according to the Financial Times back in 2016, Airbnb nearly bought Xiaozu. Uh, so there's a little bit of history. Maybe they should have done that back a couple years ago. But anyways, that's all we have time for this week. We'll be back in seven days. Until then, stay cool and uh, don't sell your socks. Bye. <laughs> Thanks. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to Connie Loizos, our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, And we will see you all right here next week.